Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Michael McGarrity. He is uh, what I'd call a land use warrior. He's one of our uh, staunch supporters of public lands. He's right now the president of the California Off-Road Vehicle Association, known as Corva. He's a former board member of the Oceana Dunes, um, which is Pismo. Uh, former vice president, Cal Four Wheel Drive Central District. And you work with the school district. You're a program supervisor. So we'll get all into that Um Personally, I met Michael the first time in Sacramento at the state capitol where Michael was doing, um, there was a, I, I wouldn't call it a sit-in or a protest, but we were there all to support Oceana Dunes and the Pismo area. And then we sat together two years ago at Ormhoff Induction Gala um, at the same table and uh, we had a chance to, to talk then. So it's good to have you on here, Michael. Thank you for spending the time with us. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity. So let's jump right in this. And uh, where were you born and raised? So I was born in the Bay Area in uh, East Bay. I was born in Castro Valley. Uh, born and raised in San Lorenzo, uh, which is a uh, unincorporated area of the East Bay in between San Leandro and Hayward. Graduated from San Lorenzo High. And spent spent my time there. Attended Chabot Junior College. Uh, got got a degree there and um, in child development. My mom was always working with uh, with children, and so I took a liking to um, working in the after school programs and working with the kiddos, and worked my way up to um, a program. Uh, you know a program manager of a site and, and, and then that that led on to um, other things that I did in life. But I, my start, I started in the Bay area. I left for a couple years. My, my dad owned an electrical business 
And when the bottom fell out of everything in 1979, my dad lost his business and he actually lost the house. And so we had to, we had to move and uh, we moved up to Calaveras County and not a lot of people know of the area, but it's, it's up, up above Valley Springs, up above McCollumie Hill, way up in this little town called Glencoe. My, my grandfather had a cabin up there. And I went and I, and I lived up there for two years. And I guess that's probably where my um, my my interest in off-roading and, um, the, you know, the Forest Service and, you know, out in the wilderness and the woods, that's where that's where everything started uh, started happening for me. Okay. I was up, was up there during that time. I, I know that area pretty well. Um, Valley Springs and Hogan's Reservoir. Spent a lot of time there. Dodge Ridge. Um, McCallamy Hill, all that area. And, uh, beautiful. It's gorgeous. I mean, anybody doesn't understand where that area is, um, at the Western side of the Sierras is what we call the foothills. And the foothills come from the Valley up to the mountainous region, um, of the Sierras and the foothills along the foothills, there's a highway called highway 49 and it's, uh, called the golden highway or the gold chain. And it's, where all the mining during the in the 1800s, all those big camps that for my, gold mining were found along the foothills and just into the mountains. So um, that's a really nice area, and I, I would imagine that was much better. You enjoyed that better than being down in the the big city. Uh, well, it was a it was a big change for sure. A uh, little city slicker boy, and all of a sudden thrown into a very rural, uh, totally, totally different, um, you know, lifestyle, I suppose. But um, I quickly adapted and um, ran all over the woods with my with my friends at the age of twelve. I was twelve and thirteen before I moved back down into San Lorenzo. Um, during those two years. Um, I, um, became part of the Explorer post and I went on a hundred mile, uh, backpacking trips from Sonora Pats to Epit Summit. I did that for, um, for, th- for two years. It was a week long backpacking trip. I was one of the youngest who had ever gone on that trip. And, um, that taught me a great deal about just sleeping and, living and hiking out and out in the woods and out on the wilderness. We, uh, we traveled the Pacific crest trail. So then that gave me my, my love for backpacking. And I backpacked, you know, several years up until probably about 10 years ago when life just got busy and my bones and legs and knees started hurting. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time out in the woods. Um, and, and then we had, uh, friends with dirt bikes, um, that lived, you know, up there, we were able to, uh, ride dirt bikes on the main road, on the main, you know, roads up there, the County, the sheriff would just wave to us and just tell us to be careful. Um, we had a, you know, an amazing, an amazing life and time, uh, living up there and, and, you know, swimming in the rivers and picking black, wild blackberries and, um, just exploring and hiking and, is quite, quite, quite an an amazing experience. Scouting and living in that kind of an area was something that um, 
that I got to experience as well. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, San Bruno, across the bay from where you are at. And uh, my parents bought a property in Placerville real early, but we had, like in 70, I think it was 1970, 71. But I had gone, I had been in scouting for a while um, since Cub Scout. My dad was a explorer post and troop leader and all that kind of stuff. And backpacking and getting out into the mountains was, you know, something that we did all the time. And uh, I grew, that's how my appreciation for the outdoors grew as well. So when, when you got back to San Leandro, um, was that, was that a, a shock? I mean, it was a shock when you moved up into the mountains and then it was a shock coming back or were you glad to be back? Uh, I think part of me actually was glad to be back because it was rough living in that cabin. Um, the, the kitchen was a converted lean to patio and it had no insulation. Um, the only heating source in the cabin was a wood burning stove. And, you know, my, my mom and two sisters and I, we basically shared and slept in the master bedroom which was just a big open room. There was the cabin had two open rooms, the living room and this bedroom. And it was, it was my grandfather's cabin that he used during the summer. He never ever expected, you know, anybody living up there, let alone his, uh, his daughter and, and three grandchildren, but we did. Um, and, and that took my, that gave my dad two years to, to get back on his, um, back on his feet and, get back into the electrical union and start, you know, making, making a living to where he was able to move us back uh, to the Bay area. And the stories that I had from my friends, I just couldn't believe, you know, what I had gone off and done for two years. And, um, and then just, you know, my physical, my, my, I was just so physically fit from, from living up there for two years and, um, that I immediately um, was uh, caught the attention of the football coach and got heavily involved in football and weightlifting and um, played played all four years of uh, football for Salamis Ohio and then uh, was actually uh, scouted. I wouldn't say rec- I wouldn't say recruited, but I was scouted uh, to the Chico State uh, football program back when they had football. Um, and played, played up there, uh, for, for one season of football at Chico state right out of high school until I was in a pretty severe, uh, uh, car accident. So that's another, that's another story. (laughs) So do you, do you want to touch on that? Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, cause that's definitely, um, it's definitely part of who I am. So, um, I was going to, going to Chico state. We just finished our our first uh, season freshman season of football up there. I was up there with my best friend from high school that I'd gone all through actually high school was eighth grade through 12th grade um, there in San Lorenzo. So I went five years with my, with one of my best friends, miles, he and I played football, worked out, um, was in an incredible amount of uh, shape. And we both went to Chico state together uh, finished the season. We were coming back home uh, for Thanksgiving weekend, and we were driving down uh, the back roads coming out of Chico uh, through Woodland, making our way over to um, 
to uh, I-5 to, to come back into the Bay Area. And one of the um, one of the roads had been uh, being worked on by Caltrans. They were out there doing some improvements. Well, they had forgot to uh, install a, a warning sign for a curve, and the um, the speed limit out there was 55. And this this turn was a it dipped down low and it hooked left 90 degrees, and it was a 25 mile mile per hour curve. And we hit it at 55. Oh wow! And um, didn't even know it was there. And we um, hit this uh, concrete water shutoff valve that you see out in out in the you know the farmland and the crop fields, and it shuts water off from one canal and goes to another canal. So we hit that, and it wiped out the passenger side. Um, I was driving a '73 Chevy pickup with the saddle tanks, and the saddle tanks on those trucks they're on the outside of the frames. And there's nothing protecting those those gas tanks except 16 gauge sheet metal on the outside of the truck bed, and it ripped off. And that was we had just filled up coming out of Chico, and we were only maybe 45 minutes and 40 minutes into our drive home. So 20 something gallons of fuel um, was you know squished out, and and the entire truck exploded, and we spun out came to rest and then the empty gas tank uh blew and threw the truck um spun the truck around when it finally came to rest um i was inside the cab completely you know the whole entire truck was on fire and so i suffered burns to my my hands my arms uh, shoulders uh bottom part of my face um Somebody uh, was driving um, out there, uh, came on scene, and couldn't believe it that that I was in that truck. My my best friend was on the ground on fire, so I jumped on him and put the fire out on him. And um, this this gentleman that stopped, he worked for uh, Chevron, and this was 1986. He just so happened to have a satellite um, cell phone because of his job. And thank God he was able to um, to call for EMS emergency services was there uh, within just minutes, and we spent um, Thanksgiving um, in uh, UC Davis Medical Center. Um, my buddy um, fought for his life for thirty days, and then um, he had over seventy percent burns, and he didn't make it. Oh shoot! And so. Pretty, uh, pretty devastating moment in my life. Uh, everything leading up to that uh, was, you know, such a full and an amazing life full of so many adventures and everything. And that was a, a definite reset button. And so that changed the course of my life for probably about three, three or four years as I was going through physical therapy. Um, I was in and out of the hospital for three three years i had to go to physical therapy occupational therapy and what they call hydrotherapy where i where i had to go into a uh, a bathtub in outpatient therapy at in castro valley when i got transferred back to the bay area i was in the castro valley burn unit at eden hospital and i had to go to the hospital and go through that every single day for two years couldn't go anywhere couldn't camp couldn't hike 
uh, my entire life as I knew it was pretty much put on hold. Um, we uh, we knew that we knew that the accident should have should not have ever happened. We knew that Caltrans had been out there working, so we um, hired hired an attorney, and uh, we sued uh, the state of California for for not putting the sign back. They said that it was uh, vandals that vandals had cut the sign down, um, but um, we couldn't prove that that they didn't. They couldn't prove that they did. But we sued GM, and General Motors admitted that they knew that they had a um, a truck with a faulty design. Um, so we won a lawsuit against them, and was able to um, help reset my life and eventually got back into um, camping again and off-roading and and uh, started a, a family um, as my as my scars and everything started to heal so I still today have uh, scars on my hands and my arms um, on part of my face um, you know but the whole experience um, you know really taught me, that you know life is precious life is short um and you know that we need to um you know take care of each other and always you know always be looking at the positive in every situation uh, because trust me that there, there was not a whole lot of positive in that whole situation but <clears throat> you know but i was given an opportunity to continue to live and um when i when i had you know, actually, you know, there were, you know, when you looked at the, when I show pictures of the truck, there's no way that I should have survived that crash. So every day has been a gift, Rich. And so um, everything that I do is, um, is because I was, you know, given the opportunity to live. Wow. That's, uh, that's an incredible story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad things turned out for you the way that they have. And that you were, you know, able to endure that and uh, and get back on track. Um, I, I I don't know what to say. Um, so when that yeah, that is definitely life changing and gives you a perspective that many don't have. That's for sure. The during that time frame, I guess, like you said, your your life pretty much came to a halt. And that's a real social time for for most of us that 19, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old to, to 24 or so. Um, how was it when you finally got done with the physical therapy and were able to get, you know, did, did you go back to, you just went to, to JC then at, at, uh, at Chabot? Yep. Yeah. So um, went, went back to JC at Chabot. You know, it was, it was, it was looking back on it. It was, you know, so uh, humbling um, experience because I mean, I was, I was 190 pounds. I was solid muscle. I mean, I was, you know, in the most, you know, great, you know, peak, you know, peak performance shape of my life playing football for Chico state and um, going to Chabot college. Um, I went, um, as a, well, insurance was going to cancel. They called my, they called my mom and said, Hey, 
your health insurance for your son's going to cancel because he's not a full-time student. She says, he can't even write what the pen is. His hands are, are wrapped up in gauze and he's going to physical therapy every day. And they said, well, he has to be a full-time student. So she was able to um, contact um, the, um, the county, Alameda County. And I, and I was accepted into the department through the department of rehabilitation as a, um, as a survivor of, of a tragic, you know, accident and with these burns. So at Chabot college, they have a disability center. So I went in as a, as a student, a disabled student and quickly, quickly realized, you know, that uh, my burns and, and what I was going through was nothing compared to some of these other students who had, you know, were born with these, you know, disabilities or, or were in worse accidents than me that were there as paraplegics, quadriplegics. So long story short, they ended up hiring me uh, part-time to work in the in their uh, rehabilitation or their dis- disabled student center. And so I actually worked as a, um, as like a physical, not really a physical therapist, but as a, a helper, as a helper. And I, and I helped um, the students um, stretch and, use the machines and and work out and while i was doing that i was taking child development courses because my other job uh was uh working in an after school program with kids and uh, you know they would ask me questions about my burns and my scars and whenever i would you know talk about it it seemed like it was always just so therapeutic that the kids children actually um you know, saved me and, and allowed and helped me go through that whole process. And between working with the children and working with these students with disabilities, their love and their appreciation for me helping them uh, was just another, was just another opportunity, um, you know, just to really reflect back on who I, you know, who I was prior to that accident. And then who I, who I was, seeing myself become and and then at the same time you know having a lawsuit against uh gm and and then finding out that the that the county um filed filed manslaughter charges against me because my best friend died in the crash what so so i had to i had to drive um during all during all of this drive back up to woodland uh get booked and uh, now uh, get a public, well, they were talking about a public defendant, but my attorney out of San Francisco who was suing, uh, you know, as us being the plaintiffs against Jam said, no, 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 I have a, I have a, a defense attorney in Woodland who's going to take on your case and he's going to take it on with the understanding he'll be paid after we win against General Motors. And so it was a 12 jury uh, trial. I had to take a break from, from college and from work and everything else. And, um, you know, we, we went through the whole entire accident and everything in this uh, jury trial. And I was um, acquitted as uh, being not guilty. And wow. And, uh, and how did your friend's parents, were they supportive? They were, uh, they were, because I you imagine know, the tragedy on their side was, you know, I mean, they had lost their their son. 
That's Absolutely. Just, you know, it, so they were, so they were part of the lawsuit. Um, you know, they were, they were one of the plaintiffs. And so um, at the, at the end when, well, so um, they, so back up a minute. So the manslaughter charges were, they were just as shocked as we were. Um, all of us were, they were not obviously in favor of that. They knew that the accident was not my fault. Um, they knew that it was, you know, because of that, that sign being, you know, cut down. And so they were very supportive during, during that, um, during that process. And then when we, uh, a year after that, uh, we finally made it, got to court and did a, did another jury trial against GM and they were there uh, during that process. Um, you know, were they were they in favor of the of the of the lawsuit against GM? I mean, they really weren't in in terms of just reliving it because it had already been like three years after the passing of their son. They really didn't want to be there, but they knew that you know they wanted justice for you know the death of their son due to you know this uh, faulty design that GM knew. I mean, we have, we had, we had, um, GM, um, videos that they didn't want the public to ever see, but we found, we, we got a hold of them where in their tests, when they were testing the trucks and doing impact tests at 35 miles per hour into a side impact that trucks were, that they were blowing up. And they knew that uh, the gas tanks were in a dangerous location for any type of a T-bone or a side side impact crash. So anybody listening that has a 73 through an 85 Chevy pickup, look underneath there. And if you've got gas tanks on the outside of the frames, you need to remove them and put a gas tank in the back like a Suburban has up in between the frame rail and put your spare tire somewhere else. Especially if you've got kids, um, you know, kids driving these trucks. Um, there it's, it's a bad, it's a bad design. It's a bad, unsafe deal. Yeah, so anyhow, they sold, um, they sold millions of those trucks. And you know what their answer was that it's cheaper to pay off the lawsuits and it was to go back and do, do a total recall. And they refused and they never did do a recall. What they did was in like around 1988, 89, they announced that, um, due to, Due to all the crashes or in the or the the deaths and the unsafe condition of the trucks, that anybody that owned one of those trucks could come and turn their truck in as a as a um, as a down payment on a newer uh, vehicle, and you know the new it was in the news. I was on I was on CBS uh, news in the in the Bay Area talking about it, and people didn't want to turn their trucks, and they loved their trucks. They just wanted GM to take their truck and make it safe, and they they refused to do it. So, wow. But back to Miles's parents, um, they re- they received a, um, a a settlement just as I did um, from GM, and they went on to. Um, and they weren't planning on having more children, but they ended up going on and ended up having more children, twins, as a matter of fact, and. Um, Miles's girlfriend at the time, she uh, went on and, you know, met someone else, started a family of her own. But, you know, we always, uh, whenever we talk, we always reflect back to the great memories of, of how special our, you know, our dear friend and their, 
their loved one was and how much we miss miles, man. It was just, it was just crazy. Wow. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that's a real insight into, uh, into a lot of different aspects of of your life and and life in general. When I think it, that's what really um, developed my advocacy, my advocacy, because I was advocating strongly um, that GM recalled these vehicles and, it just really um, made me the advocate, and when 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 things are when things aren't right, when the public is either you know not being properly represented, or the public is you know in some type of danger that they sh- that's not you know they shouldn't be in, and when we have ways to to make it better, and we don't as a society or as whatever, I, you know I you know, speak up against that. So that's, that's awesome. And, uh, I'm glad that there's, that there's people like yourself that, that have taken on these challenges. Um, you know, I know we're going to talk about the Rubicon here because of the, 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 the recent closure and some of the other things that you've been involved with, like Oceana Dunes and stuff, but you know, the, uh, it's, it's a hard, Land, being a land use warrior is not easy. I I, I did it for a little while. Um, of course, I had a, a totally different take on everything than most people do, and especially the the land use community. How they uh, typically, you know, it's it's about negotiation. Um, you know, my my thing was up on the Rubicon when when it was when Spider and uh, Little Sluice was all closed down, and you know when it was taken, taken away from us, the, the natural, and then everything that's been done to it since my thing was, you know, we just need to sue, just use exactly what the environmentalists had done. Um, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. So, <laughs> cause I, yep. I can go, I can rant and rave for hours on that. Ask Dell. <laughs> um, yep. so anyway, you 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 got through all that. You got into working with uh, kids, um, especially those that were, um, you know, some kind of a handicap, whether it was physical or, um, you know, uh, mentally. I guess is the way to put it. Um, is that still kind of the things that you're doing now, being the program supervisor? Yeah, there's some. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I work close closely with our our special education program. Um, the majority the majority of the children that we see are um, they don't necessarily have the physical disabilities, but they've they've been diagnosed with you know either um, ADHD or or opposition you know you know opposition um, they call it um, defiance issues and. Uh, OCD and, you know, autism and we, you know, we're, we're finding out that they're coming up with more and more acronyms to describe, you know, these children when they just don't want to listen and behave. And so we have, we have that going on in, in, in our schools and our after school programs. And we have great staff and we, we work with the parents to uh, provide the, the best programs that we can for them. But you know, it's been it's been a um, it's been a step by step process to to get to the point where I am, and it you know didn't happen overnight. 
one of the things I was going to mention um, is when I when I left, I left the Bay Area in 2000 and or no, actually in 1998. And my um, my wife and I, we were able to start our own after school program in a small town of Patterson, which is uh, east of Modesto. They didn't have an after school program, and I had you know about 10 years of experience running an after school program at that time. So we went and we did that for seven years. And then in 2004, had an opportunity to uh, come to Clovis, which is near Fresno, and uh, come and work for one of the largest, most successful school districts in California, and that's the Clovis Unified School District. And they had an after they have an after school program at the time that that was spread out over 30 elementary school sites. So I was able to come and become one of their program supervisors. We had ran that business for seven years and it was really tolling and it it consumed our life to the point where we were ready. I was ready to work for somebody else. <laughs> Being a business owner has its um, definitely has its its pros, but it's got a lot of cons. Uh, for example, I was able to take the last you know week and a half off of work with pay um, and not worry about what's going on at my business, you know and not be stressed about what I'm going to see when I go back to work. Uh, you know, I'm actually going to go back to work tomorrow. But being a being a business owner and everyone that owns a business on the on, that's listening right now is going to be like, yeah, we don't, you know, we didn't get the, you know, we didn't get all this time off. And if we did, it came with sacrifice, you know, of the, of the, the business and whatnot. And all the worries and running a business in California and all that other stuff, which I really don't want to talk about because that's, really irritating um, <laughs> i know really... i moved out of out of california um in 2009 so that, that could be so. that could be a whole podcast in itself and i just want to i want to i want to talk about land use right um but i but i want to also just you know let the let the people listening know that you know i i also i went back to i went back to to school and got a degree in organizational leadership from fresno pacific university in fresno and that really taught me uh, about what a lot of people may not may not know the term of ser servant leadership. And I would encourage people to do a Google search and read a little bit about what it means to be a servant leader. And and then it also ties into another term that a lot of people may not know is called follow followship. And a lot of people think that in in order to be dynamic and to be powerful in life is to be a leader. But I would argue that you first need to be a good follower before you, before you can step up and be a good leader. And a lot of people jump into being leaders without understanding what it means to be a good follower. And so then they don't understand why they don't have people following or why they don't have people, um, you know, um, basically, basically uh, wanting to be part of what they're doing because they've never really experienced what it means to be a, an effective follower. <clears throat> and so studying that and uh, getting my degree in organizational leadership really, really prepared me for a lot of the, for a lot of what I'm doing. I was a Rotarian for five, uh, for seven years, um, was on the chamber of commerce for a couple of years was a recreational commissioner for about four years. So I served on a lot of different boards in a lot of different capacities, 
but I served more as a, as a, as a follower and not the person in charge. And I think that that's really, um, you know, brought me to the point where, you know, I am now to where I am in a position of being the president of Corva to where I really understand and I do my very best to appreciate, you know, all the hard work that all the volunteers do to, to make Corva where it is. And I did the same when I was with Cal for wheels, like, you know, we are, we are all volunteers and everyone that volunteers for us, one of the most amazing volunteers that I had ever had the opportunity to work with was uh, Steve Gardner, who unfortunately passed way too soon. Agreed. And Steve, Steve was just, he was, uh, I, I miss him all the time, literally, because he taught me so much. And um, I, I, I remember board meetings where he was not spoken to uh, kindly by past presidents of Cal for Will or board members that were currently on the board of Cal for Will. And Steve Eg- Egbert was the president at the time. And he, he really, Steve Egbert's another person I have just, I have to, I have to give my, um, my um, gratitude to is that he taught me so much about appreciating our volunteers and how precious and fragile volunteers are because it's all about relationships. And as soon as you frag, you, you fragment this fragile relationship, it's forever probably going to be fragmented and to the point where you could actually lose some really good volunteers and and up right before steve's untimely death we literally um we literally at that point of losing steve just because of the lack of 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 just appreciation and recognition for for being so thankful for what for what he um meant you know to the association and the organization. And so, you know, we have those people with Corva, we have the volunteers that just are so important. And, you know, if I don't do it enough, I probably don't do it enough and I need to do it more uh, because Lord knows, you know, that I'm not perfect, but I just, I appreciate so much of, of all the people that volunteer to, you know, to, to, to help fight and, and advocate for land use. And so that's, that's one of the big things. I know I got off, on, I got off on a tangent there. I apologize. No, but no, that's, no. There, there is no getting <laughs> off on a tangent with these, with these interviews. It's just the way it goes. <laughs> a, a vol- treating the treatment of volunteers is extremely important. Um, I've seen it on both going both directions. In fact, all probably in all directions of the compass, um, on how volunteers have been treated, including volunteers that work for us. When we do our events, you know, we can't do it just with event management. Um, Just like any organization, you know, we need judges out there, somebody to, to work the courses while the teams are on the course. And if we don't appreciate them, the drivers, they're, they're out there competing and, and, you know, if the call doesn't go the way they want it to go, you know, they can they can be 
pretty argumentative. And I keep trying to remind everybody, hey, these people out here that are helping are volunteers. They're trying to help run the event and make it good for not only you as a driver, but, you know, for for us as an organization and for the spectator as well. You know, sometimes people lose sight of that. But, you know, we try to keep everybody on track and and do it. But, you know, I, I see it the same way, you know, working with some of the the groups that uh, across the country that that rely on volunteers. Um, there's some groups that do a really good job. And, and even within some groups, there's there's some great leaders out there that understand it a lot more than than others. And, you know, taking care and, and making sure that that volunteer is appreciated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super important, like super, super important. If, if our volunteers um, decided, and there has been some great volunteers, I won't mention their names because I don't want to put them on the spot, but there's some volunteers that I've spoken to who, who were some amazing volunteers just, you know, five, 10 years ago that just say, you know what, Mike, I, I really appreciate what you're doing, but I'm done. I'm not going to do it again. It's like, ah, man, we could really use you right now, you know? And it's like, no, I, I did, you know, I did my time. I, I fought hard with, you know, you know, maybe, maybe it was a big fight back, you know, like you were saying a minute ago with the Rubicon when all that, when they shut down Spider Lake or whatnot, or, or maybe it was with Johnson Valley when we had to, um, come to come to come to the table with some negotiations there and you know there's going to be there's going to be more big fights and one of the things i just would encourage everyone is that you know when we're doing this we we have to look at a much bigger picture and be patient and i know it's hard and it's hard to be patient um but we have to be patient and I think I think working with and I'll, I'll kind of I'm going to kind of trans I'm going to trans transition over to a different little conversation here. Sure. Um, you know I I developed patience through working through the Adopt a Trail program with the Sierra National Forest. So I moved to Clovis in '04. I got my '53 Willys um, CJ3A in around 2007, and. I needed to find a local four-wheel drive club. So I found the Clovis Independent Four-Wheelers, and that's where I met Steve Egbert. He was a member of the club. And uh, we have the Adopt-A-Trail program for the Bald Mountain OHB um, trail system up above Shaver Lake. And um, I I was only a member of the club for a year when they voted me in as the president of the club. And... Um, and at the, you know, so I immediately started going to all the Sierra National Forest adopted trail meetings and started really getting involved with, um, trail maintenance and what it meant. And, and I, and I had, I had to, I had to seek out other volunteers who had been doing it longer than me. And I, and I learned, and I had to learn quickly about the ROD, which is the record of decision. I had to learn quickly about, uh, what was coming up in at that time was travel management, and that was coming that was coming down the pike in in o nine ten and started started going into effect in two thousand and twelve. And so I was right in the middle of all of that when that was happening. And there was um, there was a lot of times when a lot of the people were really up in arms because everything that we knew in the Sierra National Forest in terms of trail opening and closures and and season of use dates, everything changed. 
because of this travel management. And at the time, it seemed like all the locals, we all thought that it was all targeted towards just our trails in the Sierra National Forest. And I, you know, later found out and started explaining to people was that, no, this is like, this is federal. This is, this is across, you know, all federal land. It, travel management is affecting Colorado and, and, you know, trails and, you know, anywhere that there's, you know, the United States Forest Service has jurisdiction over whatever land they're managing, they are implementing this whole travel management. And it was, it was a big, big, you know, big pill to swallow for a lot of, a lot of old timers who had been, you know, wheeling up there for so many years and um, trying to get projects done and trying to get trails to, you know, to reopen after they were temporarily closed through travel management and on and on it went. And it just taught me so much about patience and working with the forest service and working with the land managers and then, um, and then just trying to do all that we could with hardly nothing. We, we were broke. We were poor. We did a little um, fundraiser once a year that brought in uh, enough money to basically do the fundraiser again the following year, which is our Moonlight Madness Poker Run. And um, another mentor of mine, Steve Cowry uh, with um, the Stewards of the Sierra, pulled me aside and said, Mike, have you guys ever decided to apply for these OHV grants through the state of California? And we said, no what is it going to take? And he goes, well, it's a lot of work, but I think you can do it. So in 2013, it was actually 2012. I applied for the G13 grant for the, for um, under with Steve's help and our, and our um, club, um, you know, was awarded $30,000 uh, for tools and equipment and things that just, we weren't getting from the Sierra national forest. Um, which is by mind boggling, you know, because they get 800 on average, $800,000 a year in grants in a grant from the, you know, from the state parks, OHV trust fund and not just Sierra national forest. And this is something that I, that I've been preaching and talking about uh, for many years now is all the local clubs that have, trails that they go to up in the up in any national forest in california every national forest in california they're they're receiving money from this uh ohv um trust fund through green sticker and gas tax money and all the clubs have the right as as you know as united states citizens of you know who live here in california who access this land you know for the for the forest service to share this money and i say share meaning share the money to the clubs who are up there doing the work why are why are clubs having to go out and buy their own hard hats or gloves pp none of the ppe it's it should all be coming out of this money and every forest service if you go and you spend a little bit of time and look they're all receiving anywhere from 700 to sometimes over a million dollars a year in their ground ops. And that's what you got to look for. You got to look for the ground ops. Don't look at the planning or the restoration grants. The restoration grants are, are grants that they're using to close reroutes or to, or to try to decommission trails. Not a really, I'm not a fan of restoration grants. 
but the ground ops grants are super important. So Clovis Independent Four Wheelers, I, I um, wrote grants. I, I attended all the workshops, wrote grants in collaboration and in cooperation with the Forest Service. And that's the other thing is you have to have a working partnership with the Forest Service for these grants. And you have to have a letter from the land manager stating that, yes, they, you are given permission as a club you know, to uh, do this work in collaboration with them on on the land that they manage. They don't own it. They manage it. They <clears> sure so act like they own it. They don't own it. And State Parks does not own the SBRAs. They don't own it. And that's the thing that, you know, um, that we have to remember. And um, they don't own, they don't own the land. They man, they've been hired by us to manage the land. And so they're, they're managers. They, 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 they were born out of the womb, just like you and I were. And they, they put their pants on just like we do. You know, they might've went and got a different degree than we did. And they applied for a job that we didn't apply for. And they now have a position that we don't have the position that they do. That's the only thing that makes them different than you and I. You know, when we go out to lunch with these people, they eat just like we do. And they, you know, they breathe just like we do. They're no different than we are. They're, you know, they, but they've been given the job to manage the land or the, or the SVRA park. And sometimes when you go to a meetings with them, they talk, they talk in their gibberish and they talk in their, you know, their, all their scientific, you know, wording that they learned in college, but they don't own the land. And sometimes they have the attitude as if, you know, we're begging them in order to go up there and, and be on a trail that, that they own. And we're asking their permission. They don't own the land. They manage the land. Right. You know, and, and, and they're being paid. Absolutely. To manage that land by those, by us as, as taxpayers and public, you know, private citizens trying to use those public lands. And, you know, that's, that's my, my, my beef with like BLM Bureau of land management yet every time I go into an office, I mean, there's, there's one office that down in Farmington that we just, I just love their, their BLM officers because they, they have, they get it. You know, the, the, the one guy was, uh, was a police chief, was working for the police department in Farmington. And then he went to fish and game and then he came over to BLM and he he understands it. He gets it. He understands you know the recreational use of the land. Yet you know Carson City office in Nevada, you know man I I threatened to sue them back in the early two thousands because they were trying to take away everything that we were doing, and you know they were doing that up at Sand Mountain. They were doing that with our off road racing um, that had been around for. 27 years at that point. And it was that whole push to not manage and not, not patrol, but to shut down, you know, and that was the beginning of it. And I think that started with BLM first and then got a real good push with forest service was my experience. And it was, um, you know, they, they thought managing was actually closing it off. Yeah. And instead of allowing people to to work the property and use the property, you know, that, that was by right for us to be able to use, 
It was more like, okay, well, we're just going to shut it down. Here, do this inventory. Show us where your where your trails are at and what you're doing so that we can better understand it. And then they go in and close it. You know, and that's that's the fight that, that I got tired of. And like you said, people get, you know, that have been around it, they go, Hey, you know, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm over it. Um, you know, I'm not I'm I'm one of those. You know, I, I felt like I beat my head against the wall for you know, as a business owner working with those government or departments and then also as an enthusiast trying to trying to keep places open that they were trying to close down. And I give the you guys that have stuck with it and continued to to fight, um, you know, big kudos because it was I couldn't do it. I got too frustrated and too upset, and and at that time, especially in my life, I was you know I was combative, you might say, and <laughs> I would just as yeah. soon you know threaten than I would to negotiate. Yeah, no, that's understandable. It's absolutely understandable, you know, but, um, that level of intensity, Rich, uh, causes burnout quick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was not patient. <laughs> um, you know, and I, you know, again, I'm not going to mention my, some of my friends' names, you know, but I've got friends that just have just th- kind of thrown the towel in and walked away and said, you know, good job, Mike, keep it up. And I said, no, I need your help. It's like, no, I'm done. You know, and I, and, you know, um, many hands make light work. And, you know, I, I keep keep saying if I had more help, if I had, you know, some of these dynamic, uh, you know, people to help, it would just it would be. You know, we could we could get a lot done and, you know, and we we still are. Uh, we still are for sure. And, you know, but we just have to be patient and we have to we have to know, you know, kind of, you know, what what we're up against and why, you know, a lot of, a lot of times we want to know why. And, you know, here recently, you know, and, you know, this morning I was on the phone with um, Amy uh, Granat, our managing director, and we were talking about the, uh, the El Dorado County's um, a decision to close the Rubicon trail right now. And I don't know if we want to we want to talk about it. I guess this is kind sure. of a good segue. No, I think it's a great one because we're going to be writing. I'm going to be writing about it in the in our magazine I, this next issue too. Because I, I think it's important for everyone to know that you know, especially when we're talking about you know these land the land managers and um, the Rubicon is interesting because it goes it goes through two counties, El Dorado County and Placer County, and many of the many of the people listening. You know, I'm probably not telling them anything they don't already know. And there's probably a lot of listeners, including even you, Rich, that know more about the history than even I do. But, you know, Plaster County and El Dorado County, they have not always seen eye to eye. In <laughs> fact, in fact, um, there's been um, there's been times when there's events going on at Rubicon Springs when one county's been, you know, kind of allowed to be there and the other county's been not allowed to be there. Um, <laughs> and so, um, that, that, that Rubicon, we call it a Rubicon trail, but it's really the Rubicon, it's a County road. Yes. And, and so we've, we've recently, you know, I've been asked, you know, what's Corva doing to get the Rubicon trail open because, you know, Corva is an advocate to keep our, you know, off-roading, 
um, alive and well. And you know, I said, absolutely. And um, I, I as well as as, as well as others, um, other advocates. And I'm sure Cal for Will is is getting ready to send a letter as well soon. But you know, I'll be sending a letter to El Dorado County objecting the closure to the Rubicon. Uh, I understand from what I've been able to find and read on why they're closing it. Um, you know, it was a de- it was a determination made with the Department of Transportation and the Sheriff's Office and the Parks Division to uh, temporarily close it due to public safety, and and it's and it does stem from those people that got that got basically trapped, right? They got trapped a few weeks ago, right, and had to be rescued, and they brought in a lot of heavy equipment and I believe a helicopter. Um, in order to in order to be um, rescued from there, and that took a lot of resources, and so um, I, I know that that was definitely part of the decision uh, to to do a temporary closure. Um, people need to be smart, though, right? And I and I and I know that there's been comments on social media about, well, you know, if people are that um, unprepared to go out there in these type of conditions and they get stuck, it serves them right. And that's true. It does. Um, but from the, from the standpoint of the County who, um, has, you know, basically, um, your jurisdiction over the, over the County road, they see it as that they need to be prudent in order to make sure that they under, that they want the public to be fully aware and understand that, it's dangerous on that trail, on that road at the moment. And, um, and a lot of people do not go prepared. Um, no, they should. we see it. We see it all the time. We were just, we were up uh, a month ago after the first couple snowstorms and we were going into um, Sierra national forest to weather wrap all the uh, signs. That's one of the things that the, that we do as the adopter trail club and we came ac- across a group, and there was a guy in there with an all-wheel drive Honda, whatever it was, um, car. He goes, "Well, I got all-wheel drive on four-wheel drive." And I go, "But you're now stuck on the on the in the trail." He goes, "Yeah, I know. I can't go any further." So we went around him. We knew we were coming back. I said, "Well, you guys need to get turned around. You got four rigs with you. You need to get out. You don't need to go any further." So we went and we wrapped up all of our signs, and on the way out they were still sitting there waiting for us and we drug them out of there. But, and then I posted on social media, please do not go up and go in there. If you're running anything smaller than 33 inch tires and make sure you have a locker. And I covered all the bases and I got people saying, well, I've been, you know, up there in my Toyota Corolla uh, and, you know, I've made it to, you know, and you get all these people that comment saying all the things that they've, that they've been able to go up there and do in their, you know, stock vehicles. And it's, it's not, it's not safe. It's not safe to do so. Right. So the other thing that's happening um, up there on the Rubicon trail right now is the weather conditions. And the weather is really bad. Um, They're reporting 70 mile per hour wind and they've been getting dumped with a lot of snow and and a lot of rain. And so the other the other thing that 
that they're able to they're able to justify closing is if if there's going to be resource damage to uh, to the to the to the to the trail to the road. You know, you you would think that there's so much snow up there. There's no way that there's going to be resource damage to the to the road because you've got you know all this feet of snow. I don't think it's I don't think it's much I don't think it's so much that I think it's more just the personal safety of people going up there. Right. Can people, still, can people still go up there and, and go on the Rubicon? Um, I believe they can. Uh, it's advised that they're not. They shouldn't. And um, I think I think we we read something on social media that said. I was up at Loon Lake. I drove there. There's no gates. There's no gates closing the trail, and and so there's not. Um, and and you can call it a soft closure. It's a recommendation that if you're if if you're from the Bay Area, a lot of a lot of folks. No disrespect to the people from the Bay Area. Um, um, a lot of them think that they that they can just go up there and. And take and take the rigs that they've they've built, and just go up there and just you know conquer the Rubicon in the snow. You, it just it takes a great deal of experience and and just knowledge of what you're really getting yourself into when you go and you do that. I agree. There there needs to be there needs to be some personal accountability, and that's something that we as a society over the last I'm going to say fifteen to twenty years have reduced the need for. And when I say that, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've added warning labels to everything, you know, don't eat the Tide Pods. Hot coffee is hot. Um, You know, all of these things that, that are just common sense. We now have to have warning labels because people are not taking personal responsibility for their own actions. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, a sign being removed in a car accident happening because of a dangerous corner, you know, like what happened to to you. But I'm talking about, you know, Tide Pods, talking about people going up into the, you know, in their, their stock vehicle, Honda all-wheel drive and trying to snow wheel. You know, that's the, you know, there's, I've been snow wheeling for 35 plus years. And when I go up into snow, up into to wheel in the snow, doesn't matter what what vehicle I have. I've got a winch. I've got winch line extensions. I have, um, you know, traction boards. I have air, compressed air. You know, I have the ability to get in and out of those situations that I get myself into. Yeah, you you've know. got you've got you've got proper snow boots or or weatherproof boots on. I see people up there in their tennis shoes, and they're getting out of their their heated vehicle um, with um, with shorts on and tennis shoes because their vehicle's nice and warm, yeah. right? And then they get they're, stuck up there for five days, and they and they get stuck up there. Yeah, I'm not sure the guys that the five or eight rigs, whatever it was, that was stuck up here. Um, you know, during the last storm or the first storm, you know, I, I, I don't know their situation. I know that, I, that, that wheelers went in. Um, I know that they, that some of the rigs that went in there were very capable, but I know that some of the rigs that went in there from what I could tell in the pictures were 
were not for that kind of condition. Um, you know, and then with the, you know, what their driving abilities were, you know, what their decision-making capabilities were along the way. And I just, I really have a hard time, you know, because of a, of a small few that it has to impact the majority. And, you know, that's what we've done with society is we've, we've just said, okay, you know, we've got a few people over here that are, that are impacting the majority. So we have to protect these few. And to do that, you know, the rest of you are just going to have to, you know, eat dog doo-doo, you know, that's, that's the way, uh, way it's got to be. And I am just so tired of that. You know, that's it. Like I said, it comes down to that, you know, being responsible, having some common sense, maybe, you know, the signs, the warning sign label should be there at the, at the beginning of the roads leading in where the pavement or the snow plows quit saying, you know, beyond this point, you are on your own. You know, your life can be in danger during certain conditions. If you can't figure that out, time to go home and go down the street to your local park and play with your kids. Don't bring them up here if you're unprepared. If you don't have these items, you know, I mean, again, it's adding more warning labels, but damn, you know, I'm so tired of, of everybody being impacted by, by a small few. Well, and you know what this comes down to? I believe that Eldorado County is looking at the personal, them being personally held responsible in a lawsuit if somebody does go back there and, and somebody ends up getting killed and, the family of that of 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 the person of the people, Eldorado County, they're gonna they're gonna sue Eldorado County, and right. Eldorado County is like, you know what? We would rather close it than be subject to a future lawsuit. Now, you know, can they? Would they be able to put a big sign? You know, spend a couple hundred dollars on a big sign, uh, at at the you know at the Loon Lake before you you know before you hit the. Uh, the man-made dam or whatever that right there that says right here is your opportunity to turn around um, because the conditions are severe. Right. And then I believe, I believe they still have the road going up. Do they still have the one going into Whitwood Springs? If they do put one there and then put one on the other side, on the Tahoe side, yep. would that, would that be enough to protect them in case somebody doesn't heed the warning and then go in there and something bad happens? I don't know. Right. I don't know, but, um, as of right, as of right now, um, you know, people who, um, are accustomed to, to, to those conditions who go in and prepared exactly like what you said with all of, with everything that you, that you should have in your rig and with the, the 35 years experience. So they can still go in there and they can go up there and go snow wheeling if they want to, um, but it's it's just I think the letter the letter um, or the closure should have probably been you know it's pretty vague actually you know um, it's just closed for public safety in accordance with the county procedures it doesn't say what those county procedures are and the determination was made with the Department of Transportation Sheriff's Office and the Parks Division but it really doesn't explain you know, what, what, what made that determination, but, um, and I think they keep it vague on purpose. 
Right. So it's all all encompassing. So if somebody does get up yeah. there, you know, it 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 wasn't about resource damage this time because the way that the agreement was written on closures, they had to meet all three of the mitigation levels. I guess you would is the way to put it. Um, I'm probably using the wrong vernaculars, but anyway, it's it you know it it has to do with you know runoff and and water levels and how deep and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, but I think and that's where we all jumped to the conclusion to begin with because it was so vague is that it was because of resource damage and the rains. You know, I mean, the rains, we had good snowfall and then we had heavy rains because it warmed up and high winds. So everybody figured, oh, that must be what it's about. But they were trying, you know, only one of those was met out of the three. And the wording means, says it has to have all three to be shut down, not just one. It's and, 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 not or, or, and, or. So, you know, my recommendation when that thing first came out was, you know, especially with RTF was, well, it sounds like it's time to file a lawsuit and force the county, you know, but somebody to do that, somebody had to have be written a ticket so that there was an injury. They were personally injured, meaning that they had, you know, they were cited so that right. we could take it to court. Because if you, if you file a lawsuit on something like that and nobody's injured because of the closure, then they can just reopen it and say, okay, and then as soon as you, the lawsuit is dropped, then, you know, right away they can do it again and keep doing this until somebody actually, you know, goes to get a ticket. And so I was, I was one of those that, you know, made some phone calls in the background to saying, okay, you know, let's, let's go do, let's go up there and get ticketed so that we have, you know, that, that precedent so that we can, you know, file, file and keep going. Because that's what, that's what the unfortunate that's what the green industry the environmentalists use against us all the time as you know we're being injured because these people are using motorized recreation you know and we don't like the sound and it bothers our you know it gives us pstd because we see the squirrels run away from them whatever you know yeah. um so those government agencies don't want to be sued so they just shut it down and then that lawsuit gets dropped or, you know, they write a, they write another directive and then, you know, there's more warning labels and, and closures. Yeah. We can, we can talk about the panda, the panda effect here in a second. That's, that's an analogy that, you know, us off-roaders, we need a panda bear to protect. I mean, uh, because nobody wants to see a panda bear be hurt. So you're going to send a monthly, um, you know, monthly money, and every year to this save the panda bear, um, you know, organization because, you know, panda bears are cute, you know, but back to the, the Rubicon trail, um, the, uh, the person to call and talk to is Vicki Sanders. And she's, um, she's the one that oversees. So anybody that really, really, really wants to, to understand and hear firsthand from the, from the right person that is overseeing uh, that that Rubicon Trail, the road, Vicki Sanders is a great person, resource to call and and hear it directly from them, from her. Um, I've been waiting um, for the holidays to kind of clear out. Um, I've sent some emails. I've, I've I got some emails immediately, automatically sent back saying that 
um, I'll be back in the office um, on such and such a date in January. So a lot of, you know, expected. A lot of people um, are are off on their holiday Christmas uh, break and vacation and New Year's. So as we get back into the swing of things here in January, um, I would expect that we're going to get something a little more official, um, especially with um, the pressure that the Rubicon Trail Foundation president, um, Ken Hauer, is you know, putting on El Dorado County, um, letters are going to be coming in from uh, from both Corva and and other organizations. I would expect, you know, I think I think that, and I don't think I know that you know, perception is is stronger than reality, or perception is reality. However you want to say it, um, the perception is that you know they're just arbitrarily closing it because they don't want to manage it and you know basically deal with you know people going in there and getting stuck um and we get people we get people stuck you know up in the sierra national forest all the time and we have what we in locals we have a local you know facebook page called 559 recovery and these other recovery groups and volunteers, you know, pull together resources, go up there, and we get the the stuck people out. And so, and that's a, that's available here as well. Exactly. And also, you know, I, El Dorado County could could you know actually put together a video, educational video that talks about you know the conditions up there. You know, what does it mean when you're driving on the Rubicon? You know, it's not, it's a county maintained road, but not during the winter. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to reopen it on such and such a date, but understand this and have an explanation, you know, of, of what to prepare for and use it as an um, education opportunity rather than a closure opportunity. And that's what I'm going to be encouraging uh, when I talk to Vicki and, and send a letter into El Dorado County. But again, it's, you know, kind of that patience thing and taking one step at a time and don't, you know, I, I never try, I always, I always try not to knee jerk. And back in my twenties and thirties, I suppose I was a, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, young and, and dumb and, and just knee jerked and, and said things I probably never should have. So um, you can always you can always ramp up a conversation to say things that man I can't believe I just said that but you've already said all this other stuff leading up to it so it's kind of warranted at some point <laughs> correct <laughs> you know you can always you know you can always you know jump to a stronger tone um, but once you jump to that tone it's hard to go back um, and dial it back down again so and and I'm and I'm always the one that. I have no intention of dialing it back. You know, I, I know Vicky and, uh, you know, I've been in the meetings with the, you know, during that whole time with, with even before RTF became a thing and even friends of the Rubicon was, was not even a thing. Um, and, and out of necessity, those things did become things. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't agree with the way RTF has done things. Um, you know, that's fine. Everybody's got their own opinions. Um, I'm one of them, you know, I'm not sure everything that they've ever done is, is done with the best interest in mind. Um, you know, but 
and and same with Calfor and same with Corva and everything else. I mean, you know, and it 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 you know, everybody's got their own personal opinion on how things to be done, but it's those like yourself that are and Ken Hauer and RTF and and the people at Cal Four Wheels, Steve Egbert and stuff that are pushing and continuing the fight that uh you know, if you're not out there fighting and all you're doing is standing behind the scenes and complaining, you know, you're you're part of you are part of the problems. Now that's gonna piss off a lot of my friends up here because a lot of them are, you know, total anti-social um <laughs> when it comes to, to land use and, you know, they, they'd rather get in there with a baseball bat than, than with a, a piece of paper and a, or a, you know, an email. Um, so, you know, but my, my, you know, if you've got a problem with the way things are being done, you need to jump in there and do it, do it yourself or create another organization or work within the organizations that are there and, and try to help um, change, change the mind you know, of those of those that want to negotiate everything away to save one aspect, um, you know, and 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 I'm I'm guilty of that. You know, I'm guilty of of walking away from from land use because I just got I just got burned out on it. You know, and seemed to be fighting with everybody that was friends instead of coming together and figuring out a way to to make it work for everybody. Well, yeah, and. <clears throat> And for those out there who get upset that well, Corva hasn't made a you know a, a public statement on on you know this trail this the closure, you know they haven't said anything yet. It's like you know I, what I can what I can what I can say about that is that we have to we have to take everything into consideration. We have to be patient. We can't knee jerk and. And say something on behalf of Corva that could be, um, you know, done out of out of ignorance um, or just out of just you know emotions. Um, and we do we do have relationships and and collaborations with uh, the county agencies, with state parks, with the Forest Service, and um, we we've been accused of you know basically being suck ups or um having you know uh, somebody used the term of of uh you know derogatory terms of you know being more um you know friends with them rather than advocacy adversaries and you know I, I i have found that we have gotten much better results especially here locally with the sierra national forest in working in collaboration with them rather than opposition. And um, if, if Corva is, is being blamed or ever, you know, spoken poorly about because of not being, having a stronger hand, like with state parks, for example, um, we, we still have a open line of communication with them. And I think that that is, that is really important. I mean, what happens once you pull that trigger, so to speak, and say something that is you're a hundred percent, you could be a hundred percent correct, but say something so damaging that you cut off that relationship, that open line of communication with a deputy director, for example, to where they don't even want to talk to you anymore. And they don't, they don't necessarily have to, 
I mean, they really, I mean, they, they should have to because they're a public, um, you know, they represent the public. They're a public uh, representative. But if they if they want to if they want to cut you off and and not have an open line of communication with you, um, you know, they're not they're not. It's it's hard to hold them accountable for doing that, right? Um, and it's hard it, and it's and it's it's hard to reestablish that type of relationship with them to where, you know, you can send them a text message and they will pick up the phone and talk to you and have that conversation with you. Um, I think that is more beneficial in the long run than than having five minutes of glory where on social media you put them on blast and everybody's like, yeah, you really gave it to them. Yeah, well, okay, that felt good for a minute, you know, but that's like, you know, spanking your kid for, um, you know, for, you know, taking the last cookie out of the cookie jar. I mean, um, that's only going to be temporary. You know, you're you only got you only going to get your point across for as long as that spanking, as long as they can feel that spank. You know what I mean? Right. Um, a long term solution is sitting down and having a conversation about, you know, how um, that last cookie was the last cookie for the rest of the house or whatever. You know what I mean? That you know, there's other people to take into consideration, and that's just being selfish, and you're not you're not thinking of the rest of the people in your house. So it's like. I think that when we, or me, if all of a sudden I sent this scathing, you know, public rant and on behalf of, you know, Corva and really, you know, put an agency on this serious blast and it'd feel good. And, the, and I would probably get a lot of accolades going, yeah, you gave it to them. Thank you so much for speaking on our behalf. Well, what did that do to that relationship that we have been building with that agency? When, when it would have been better for me to have a, a conversation with that agency and really encourage them to take, take what is a perception and change it into a reality with some type of a public notice, a public video, a statement that, that acknowledges everyone being upset. So back to this, you know, let's just go back to this closure and we can use this model with a lot of other things like even clear you know even with clear creek you know a lot of people don't understand why it's still closed but el dorado county um in conjunction they could do a they can do a uh, press release in front of even in front of um, some cameras and just talk about the reality of the conditions that are up on the rubicon trail explain that it's a county road explain you know, what the conditions are like up there, explain the severity of, you know, what can happen, everything that we've been talking about for the, you know, the past few minutes. And if, if I can, if I can encourage them to do that, that's going to be way more beneficial um, than, you know, me getting on social media and doing some rant scathe and just rip them. Uh, for for closing it without having it because they haven't really given a a good explanation on why. Yeah, and it would be so easy for them to do that, you know, to to put together a press release, you know, and and have um, you know, the 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 local news stations come up and and record it and and make a statement, and then everybody could 
could take that statement from the news. I mean, it's not costing them a damn thing, except exactly. an email to the news outlets going, hey, we're going to do this, you know, and you know they're all going to show up. They're uh, going to jump all over it. Right. And, you know, where where us as an individual, um, you know, it takes us a lot, a lot more to do something like that. So if they were able to just come out and say, okay, this is what it's going to be, this is what we're going to do, and, you know, have the sheriff in the background, have – you know, the county and the different agencies that are all behind it give the reason, then at least we could share it and hopefully keep, you know, some of those uh, those people that shouldn't be up there um, in those kind of conditions. Maybe maybe it'll help keep them out of there. But, you know, the uh, it's it's such a fine line. I, I think that I think that, the, you know, with with like yourself and others like Ken and stuff that are that are part of the organizations that are trying to deal with the land managers um, on a, on a grander scale that you guys do need to be more careful. But I, I truly believe that there's got to be the guys out there like myself and some others that are ready to rip somebody's head off, at least on social media to, 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 to get the, you know, get everybody riled up so that there is, there is some backing so that maybe people, others will join and you know, participate and be those volunteers, whether it's on the ground or you know, writing a letter, um, letter campaigns, or or you know, donating to one of the organizations for you know, for covering lawyer fees and that kind of stuff. Because the environmentalists sure have that that whole angle figured out. So, Rich, uh, that is absolutely correct. You hit the nail on the head. See, I need. In order for me to be productive with the county, I need others to object and rip them on social media because I can refer to that. And it, I do it all the time with Dean Gould, the, the forest supervisor. Um, I, I, I talked to him and I said, have you seen what's being said? Have you seen what the perception is? Because you haven't clarified the reality. So perception is becoming reality. And he goes, no, what's going on, Mike? So I tell him what's being done and said on social media. He's like, oh, okay. Um, okay, let me do something. And he, he does something about it. And and so we do need um, some, some really, you know, scathing, however you want to put it, um, comments being made about closures, um, you know, just recently they bulldozed a trail uh, down south in the San Bernardino um, National Forest, and it was it was um, ah, man, it's on the tip of my tongue. And the the local club goes up there to do a, a trail run, and they didn't even know that the that the Forest Service was going in there. They didn't know anything about it, and it got it got leveled, and that's like a big deal, and so. Uh, we're working. We're working on uh, on that on figuring out why, and they should have, you know, they should have front loaded the community. They should have front loaded, you know, and and said, hey, due to, you know, blah 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 blah. This is what this is what we had to do for this reason. This is why we did what we did, and I don't think that state parks does that good enough and well enough and frequently enough. They sure the heck haven't done that when it comes to uh, everything happening at, at the Oceana Dunes. Right. You know, state, state parks has been horrible on, 
on publicly talking about why they, they why they they've been doing and explaining in layman's terms, not where you're talking to a graduate student who graduated in biology about why they're closing it, but talking to the average, you know, um, Californian who, you know, um, is the is the off roader who does who's pissed with all the closures and happening at at Oceana Dunes and why is it happening and explain you know about the coastal commission and the air pollution control district and all the different other things that are happening and these public these land managers that's what they really need to be held accountable to is fully just explaining to the public the why behind the what we know what they're doing because we can see it why are they doing it but explain it that you know people can understand you know and right because otherwise we're just going to assume that people are are it's going to be like the whole nimby you know um syndrome you know not in my backyard i have mine now i'm going to shut it off to everybody else and that's because that's pretty much what the coastal commission is all about us as a as motorized recreation have not done that we're, we have not been good at that and it's uh it's telling you know well and you know, we don't want to shut anything down and, right. and off-roaders, we don't want to shut down hiking, you know, on the Pacific Crest Trail. We don't want to shut down uh, bird watching on Oceana Dunes. We don't want to shut down, um, you know, people being able to go and, and, and enjoy the outdoors. We want to keep it all open, but we also want to keep our off-roading areas open. The, the, the contrast to that is, the environmentalists who go hiking and go bird watching and go well watching, they are they they are anti off-roading, period. So the difference between the two of us is that they want closures for off-roading. Off-roaders, we don't want any closures. We don't want people to be closed off to being able to go and enjoy the outdoors. So that's what makes it a more of a challenge for us is because we're advocating to keep everything open for everyone, access for all. Hello, correct. You know, whereas they're not, they're not for access for all. They don't believe in keeping the public lands open to the public, in for the public at large. They're they're interested in keeping the public lands open for everyone who isn't going to bring any type of form of motor motorized recreation to their area that they want to see protected. And, you know, the, it goes to the mountain bike riders also because, you know, you've got these uh, tires, you know, and I'm going to sound, I'm going to sound crazy here, but th the tires um, go into the earth and they make a little tire path. And that little tire path allows water to hit the little tire path and causes erosion, you know, and, how big is this planet earth and that one little trail and that one little area and that one little spot and that one little teeny uh, little area is going to affect, you know, their, you know, global climate, you know, you know, warming and all this other change that they're talking about. It's, 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 it's actually, you know, when you really, when you really think logically about it, it's so illogical. Um, anti-logical whatever that word is that is it's it's just so frustrating because 
the impact that we're having, I'll go back to the Rubicon trial, the impact that the, we're having on the grand scheme of things. Now, if there was an environmentalist on here, they would completely argue against me because they're like, no, because the water goes down your guys's trails and it goes into the riverbeds. It's like, you know what? Have you ever seen what Mother Nature does? Look at the news right now. Exactly. Mother Nature destroys this earth. I mean, destroys it. They, when you talk about when you talk about erosion, they Mother it. Nature is punishing. I mean, it dumps way too much rain at one time. It doesn't spread it out. You know, it 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 it, it is relentless what it does and it you know, you talk about you know, land, uh, rock slides, landslides, and it has nothing to do with what man did. Or we can't, we can't tell Mother Nature to to slow down on the rain. We got rain for what the next four or five days hitting. It's going to be bad, you know. But if but if these environmentalists were in charge of an agency that's bringing the rain, oh, they would be filing lawsuits right now. You can't bring any more rain. We're going to sue you. We're suing you. Because we can't handle this much rain, <laughs> you know, but mother nature is not listening to you. Exactly. Mother nature's in charge and there's no, there's, you know, the impact that, that our little four wheel drives and our little side by sides on the grand scheme of things and our motorcycles and dirt bikes, snowmobiles up in the snow. It's, it's, it, it is, it is so crazy, you know, um, Okay, so there's a there's let me let me jump let me jump absolutely jump to something here right now. So there's this so there's this um this new unite the parks things that's happening right now. Um our 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 one of our forest um hot forests, our one of our county supervisors has spoken up in opposition to this whole unite the parks. And it's all because of the uh Northern Pacific Fishers who lives and um has their um habitat between uh, Yosemite, Sierra National Forest, they, they, they've got, you know, they've spotted them in the, uh, the Stanislaus National Forest. So because of the, you know, mainly because of the fisher, you know, they want to shut down um, all motorized recreation, camping, everything from Yosemite to uh, literally um, Mount Whitney. They want to make it all um, a national monument, unite the parks. Um, I cannot even think that they have even a, a glimmer of a chance of even doing this, but they're pushing to make it happen, you know, and, and, you know, in, in my 20 years of four wheel driving and, ha and, and camping and backpacking in the Sierra national forest, I, you know, I rarely, all I see, you know what I see up there is like chipmunks and once in a while a deer, maybe a bear, a little cub barrel you might see run up into the bushes these animals are so far from the trail, you can't even believe how far they are away from our trails. They don't want, they don't want anything to do with any of the, the OHB trails that are traveling, you know, through the woods. It, this specific fisher, sur survey uh, all of the off-roaders that have ever been in, in any of the OHB trails between Yosemite and uh, Sequoia National Forest and ask how many times they've seen the Pacific Fisher on the trail in jeopardy of being, you know, affected by an off-road vehicle and that they've barely escaped with their life. You'll find none. There is none because they, they will not be anywhere on the trail, anywhere near the vehicles. 
Right. So, you know, it's like we have to, we, we almost have to fight against just, you know, pure stupidity. Um, well, they, because they find, they find any little, or what they, they consider big, but ever, but I consider little thing that could be affected or they think might be affected. I, when I was putting on races up in Northern Nevada, um, and was dealing with the different BLM offices, I was told that, you know, well, you're off-road racing, you're going to go down this road and you're going to fragment the herds. And I'm like, okay, the herds of what? And they said, well, the antelope and the deer and the wild horses and all this, they won't, they won't come anywhere near where you've had a race. The, I went and set up a race outside of Lovelock, Nevada, and it was a Vora race, Valley Off-Road Racing Association. And my dad was with me, and I counted a herd of 174s where I lost count because there were so many of them moving that I couldn't I, – I just – I lost count. They were moving so fast and, and crossed – you know, I mean, I, I'd never seen that many antelope together in my life. And, you know, on this 60-mile on this loop that we had, we found, you know, herds of wild horses, um, you know, everything you can think about, deer – burrows, everything. Well, we, uh, after the race, you know, we go out and we pick up our markers and, you know, we drag the race courses and points at different points and make sure that, you know, anything and everything left behind is picked up. And, you know, I did, we did a really good job at that because we always wanted to be invited back. The day after the race, I'm out there driving the race course and in the area where, the, the ground has been disturbed on these roads that we used. I mean, we didn't go across any open land. It was all roads that we tied together that there was track marks on almost every single part of those roads. And when they said you fragmented, you know, that, oh, they wouldn't cross or they won't use the roads anymore. It was a bunch of bull. You know, I took pictures of all the, the hoof marks and everything else and, you know, I was called a liar, you know, when I was, when I was arguing the point that, you know, we were not fragmenting the herds that, you know, we found what it was is that the animals were along that road now, because now the vegetation, some of the vegetation has been disturbed. So the birds are over there, you know, getting what they can off of the stuff that's been disturbed. You know, the, the it's easier for the, for the herds that we fragmented to, to actually travel you know, down the roads instead of across country. And, uh, you know, they, the environment environmentalists don't want to hear that, you know, because no. that's against their science. Yeah. Again, you know, there's so many other things that fragment the herds. Um, mother nature fragments the herds. I mean, uh, wildfires fragment the herds and that's all, that's all man caused due to lack of proper, you know, forest management. And I guess we can do a whole podcast just on uh, forest management and wildfires and the devastating Creek fire that hit the, the Sierra National Forest back in 19 was absolutely horrible. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I guess, I guess what we're, what we're really talking about today is um, how, how huge and, and, um, and and big, California is in terms of advoc advocating 
to keep our public lands open to the public and how we have to do it in collaboration with all of these land managers, all of the, and then up against these environmentalists who don't want the panda bear or the Pacific fisher, you know, killed. And they're getting so much support from people who believe in them. And we estimate that there, we estimate that there's close to like 15, is it 15 million? I think I heard the last number of off-roaders in California. Um, I don't know. I think that, I think that that's a lot. I think that's what I heard. heard. I, I would, I wouldn't doubt that. Um, you know, and I think that number, that number is being used when we're talking about the impact of the closures in the Oceana dunes. Um, I think that number is being used right now about this 30 by 30. Have you heard of, you've heard about that, right, Rick? No. So let me tell you about this 30 by 30. So, um, from, from Washington, DC, uh, president Biden, um, has, is, is working with the department of interior and by 2030, they want 30% of all, of all, um, our land to be to be basically protected and we you know we are under the belief that they already have 30 percent um but they want more and they're looking at more areas in california that they want to quote unquote quote unquote protect um and so corva um is at the meetings um i know cal for will through their uh, natural resource consultant, um, Rose, um, she has been attending uh, the meetings as well. Uh, we are arguing and we need the public to be arguing that um, that state parks, they already have 30% of the land in California. And the initiative is to protect areas, um, you know, near already natural preserves and uh, they want more land to quote unquote con conserve their land, um, you know. And this comes at the at the same time that we now have money through losing the the Tesla expansion area next to Carnegie. We now have millions of like nineteen million dollars that we have to actually open to create and open up another SVRA in California. At the same time, you've got the federal government coming down and of course our governor is a hundred percent behind it with, um, the, the natural resource, um, um, secretary of state, uh, Wade Crowfoot, they're all hundred percent. And that whole, that whole conversation with the two of them and what they're doing in California when it comes to off-roading is, is disturbing, but, um, that's that's another conversation, but what they're they're hundred percent behind this thirty percent, this thirty by thirty, and then it, how interesting that that uh, ties in and, and and connects with the whole uh, deletion of uh, combustible engines by two, 2030. Um, I don't know. Californians definitely need to speak up and stand up and be stronger voice, especially. Um, anybody that in, enjoys the off, off, um, not off-roading, but outdoor recreation. 
I've I've already talked about this, and I'll say it and I'll say it again that you know Corva is the California Off Road Vehicle Association, but more importantly, it's the California Outdoor Recreation Association because everything that we're advocating is protecting outdoor recreation for campers, for hunters, for miners, for uh, people who uh, are out uh, rock hounding, and in order if we're keeping the roads and trails open in order to go and and go off-roading we're also protecting those same roads and trails that you're that you're going to go fishing or you're going to go to your uh trailhead to go backpacking or where you're going to go and park to unload your mountain bikes to go mountain bike riding or so, your horse trailers and unload your horses exactly 100 percent, exactly so something big needs to happen in california to rally behind protecting outdoor recreation and and it and it's and it's got to be so big that governor newsom retracts and back and backpedals like how are you gonna they, he wants to make it illegal to buy a generator in california that's it's it's absurd exactly i mean everybody that um that is not even if you're if you're not an off-roader if you outdoor camp and you um, have a toy hauler and you take generators, you use the generators. What about what about all these vendors that you see everywhere in California um, whipping up uh, tacos and their and their trucks are all running generators? Why why aren't they why aren't they um, you know against against this from happening? What about all the gardeners who are going to be forced to go to all electric weed whackers, electric lawnmowers to do all their landscaping and, and, and all, it's just all their weed blowers. I mean, everything is going to be illegal to buy in California. Well, yeah. And then, and then, you know, electricity has to be generated somewhere. You just don't plug into a current bush. So, I mean, our advocacy is, yeah, we're advocating to protect our, our trails and our, and our roads for off-roading, but it goes so much further than that. And, Everyone who off-roads and enjoys camping needs to be telling all of their friends and family that what they're fighting for and the reason why they support Corva and support Cal for Wheel and support BRC and support the Friends of Oceana Dunes is for protecting off, not just off-roading, but to protect outdoor recreation. And that has got to be, that has got to be the, the panda right there. Right. That that our panda is outdoor recreation and the environmentalists, they don't want any of it. They don't want they want you to stay uh, at, in your track home. They don't want you living out on property where you have to have a well. I mean, this what we're fighting against is goes way beyond the 15 million, you know, off roaders. It, it goes into the millions who uh, want to still go backpacking. Because they, they don't want backpackers back there backpacking. They don't want you sleeping out in the wilderness. I mean, um, it's, it, it's, gotten, it's, it's been bad for years where you have to get permits. You have to, you have to get a permit, you know, uh, just to hike to the top of Half Dome. Uh, it's just, you know, and, it, and, and it's, all, it's all about, you know, protecting and I, and you know, I guess it is, I guess it is what it is because of the 2% and, 
we can talk a minute about the 2% um, because there are 2% of people out there that um, are idiots, that are stupid, that uh, do the burnouts in the meadows, that, um, that you know, crap out in the woods and they don't bury or, or better yet, take a wag bag and bring their, you know, bring their feces and stuff out with them. They just, you know, the whole eradicate the white flower is it's a real thing. And, um, you know, people need to do a better job. And there's 2% out there that don't care. I, I mean, I'm sorry to say it that way, but they don't care. And um, a lot of those two percenters, they go to the, they go to Oceana Dunes. I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't camp there Monday through Friday. Um, I don't camp there Saturdays and Sundays. I camp there Monday through Friday, I should say. Right. So I like to go there in the month of July. And my wife and I, we were married on, on the, on the dunes. And so we go there for a week. We get there on either Sunday evening or Monday morning and we leave uh, Saturday morning. If, if we can, we're out of there Friday afternoon because Saturday and Sundays, it's, it's just, it's, it's, there's 2% people out there that ruin it for everybody. Well, and, and, Um, and then the state in their infinite wisdom or the, the federal government has closed restricted the areas, whether it's Glamis or Oceana or, you know, the Imperial Sand Dunes or any of that, they've, they have created the mess themselves by throttling down the amount of land and, and dispersed camping and activity into a smaller area. And now there's more people recreating in a smaller area. So you see what they consider resource damage, and then they say, well, see, you guys can't take care of this stuff, so we're just going to take more of it. And then there's more people stuck in an, even a smaller area. And it's uh, they've created this problem themselves. 100%. And, because, and then they because, use it against us. Right, because 2% of the people um, would would drive in Oso Flaco and drive in the water and disturb the, the natural resources and be idiots because they're idiots. And law enforcement, I tell you what, if if you're if you're driving off the trail and you're damaging resources, it, you know, the best way to educate is to is to cite I'm sorry, give them a citation. I mean, um, why is you know, why you know, I don't I don't want to use the analogy about drunk driving and DUIs, but I mean um, it's ten thousand dollars if you if you if you're drinking and driving. I mean, I don't want to say that if you if you're if you get caught off of the trail that you're going to get fined ten thousand dollars. But you know, education sometimes has to be a little painful, and um, especially repeat offenders. You know, if they had like a database system where you know they they catch somebody you know tearing up a meadow, and they 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 get put into like a and instead of a Megan's law, they, they got something else that keeps track of these repeat offenders, you know, and, you know, they've got, they've got regulations that say that you're not supposed to be doing over 15 miles per hour around campsites, but then, you know, you, you, you turn your head and there's 2% of people doing Brodies and, and uh, ripping through campsites and being idiots in a camp uh, and, I don't know what happened uh, over the past couple of years. 
uh, we're, uh, the Friends Oceana Dunes is still trying to figure it out, but the the law enforcement presence on uh, the the Oceana Dunes SVRA has really really diminished, and we have we have asked um, Sarah Miggins, the director, what's going on. We've asked you know Antonio Quintero, the deputy director, what's going on. We've we've talked with um, Kevin, the you know they don't have a superintendent. Uh, that that oversees uh, the Oceana Dunes SVRA because nobody wants the job, but you know Kevin has been the the stand-in acting you know supervisor of that park, and you know all we hear is you know we're doing we're trying to do a better job we're trying to do a better job we're trying to have more of a you know a, a ranger presence out there, but we see the same thing up in this here national forest you know the le the leos the law enforcement officers. They're, they're scarce. You'll find them on the main roads, but you won't find them back, you know, back in there. So somehow we need to do a better job, you know, I guess self-policing, but then that comes with consequences too, because I have been called names. I have been, um, I have been uh, ridiculed on, on social media. You know, who does this Mike McGarity guy think he is, you know, telling me what I can and can't do when I'm up on Bald Mountain. I've, I've almost gotten to the point where I don't even say anything anymore because, you know, it sucks because I, you know, because I have, I've, you know, I've pulled people over and said, what are you doing? Where are you at? What do you mean? What am I doing? Where am I at? You're way off the trail. The trail's over here. What are you doing over there? Well, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. They don't know, you know, so there's a thing called the motor vehicle use map. It's called the emblem. And that, that motor vehicle use map came out of travel management. You can hate it or you can love it, but it tells you where the trail is. So 10 years ago, everyone knew where the trail was. But now um, there are trails going everywhere. You know, and, and you know, I, Rich, I wish you would say it before I do, but it's probably because a lot of those trails are from a lot of newer people out there are recreating off-roading absolutely you know, you know and, and 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 a lot of it <laughs> i hate to say it, but a lot of it is is the utvs um or at least that's what i've seen and it's because everybody can finance these things now and there's no all the advertising is done is showing people ripping around in nature whether it's in the sand or on a on a hillside or whatever. Um, and so when people buy these things, they're like, well, I can go out there and rip around everywhere. And the, it, it, it boils down to, you know, there's no education process on, on, you know, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it, and it starts with the people that are, that are selling these, these vehicles, whether it's Jeep, whether it's, um, you know, Polaris or Can-Am, you know, or now the Ford Bronco, it's, it comes down to, you know, what are you showing in your advertisements and what are you, you know, how are you, you selling your vehicles and then just assuming that everybody's going to, you know, do what they want. Cause that's what they, that's, that's their whole plan, you know, is, is show how exciting it is to have one of these vehicles. And, uh, you know, it, and all it's doing is damaging, you know, damaging our, there's two, it's becoming more than 2%. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so for the listeners who are listening to this and are kind of new to the off-roading and maybe they have an, uh, one of these new fancy, amazing side-by-sides that just, they go fast. They're awesome. They're fun to play with. They're a joy to, you know, it's like, you know, having Disneyland, you know, in your, in your, in your hands, right. And under your butt. I mean, cause you just, you get the ride of your life, but they're super fun. Just understand that, that when you go riding in Glamis or go riding out on the dunes, that is so different from when you're riding on like, for example, BLM land or Sierra national forest land. When you, when you're riding on the Glamis, you can pretty much go wherever you want to go. As long as you're not, you know, going in an area that's fenced off. Same with the Oceana dunes, same with when you go up to Oregon dunes, you know, but even in Oregon, when you leave the dunes and you're going in between the trees, there's trails and you're supposed to stay on those trails. Just like when you go to the Sierra National Forest or any national forest that has trails, you have to stay on the trails. And a lot of these new people, they come from riding out um, across open open areas like Glamis. Then they, they go, oh, we, we want to go ride the national forest. Okay, that's fine. But listen... You have to understand something, a couple things. You're going to come across people that are in four-wheel drive vehicles that go slow. And they're going to be in front of you. And so you're going to be patient because you can go on that trail a lot faster than they can. So when you're in a, um, you know, I've got both. I've got, I've got four-wheel drive. I've got a, I've got a CJ3A um, Willys and I've got a, a, RZR um, Polaris. So I've got both. When I get in either one of them, it's a different mindset. It's no different from when you get in your Corvette versus your pickup truck pulling your toy hauler. You're not going to drive your pickup truck towing your toy hauler the same way you're going to be driving your Corvette. You know, you're just, you're just not going to drive them the same way. So when you jump in your side-by-side, you have to have the mindset that, yeah, you can go fast and have fun, but you have to understand that you're going to, when you come up on people going slow, be patient. Now, if you're, if I'm in my Jeep and I'm going slow and I see side-by-sides and people coming up behind me, I'm going to find an appropriate location that isn't going into any vegetation, but I'm going to pull over and um, allow them to come around me. Cause I know that they can just, they can go faster. Right. But I don't know why there's a reluctance. Cause when I'm in my side-by-side and I come up upon I'll come up behind two or three four-wheel drives. They they know I'm back there, but they don't want to pull over. And I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, it's that same mentality. I don't know what you think about it. I don't right. know what you do when you're on the trail, but I, I find the I find the right spot and I pull over and I wave them around, just like I do when I'm when I'm driving my truck and I'm in my, in my toy hauler. Uh, you know, I'll use the pullouts if I can let people go around me. Um, I stay in the slow lane. If I'm going to pass the semi, I get back over. I mean, so it's just, is it common courtesy? Is that what we're missing here? Yes. We've turned into just a me society, unfortunately. So how can people, how can people help? Um, what are the organizations that, so, that, you know, how do we, how do we, how do people get involved? So yeah, let's, yeah, let's close on this. So our Off-Roaders in Action, Araya magazine for Corvid just came out. I wrote an article in it. 
I would encourage everyone to read it. It says, who should I, who do I support? In that article, I talk about you support where you recreate, just like you tithe where you go to church. I mean, you, you give back to what, who's given you, you give back to who's feeding, right? Who's feeding you. You support where you recreate. If you go to Oceana Dunes and that's where you have always gone for many years, and maybe you haven't gone there recently because you don't like what's going on there, you should be supporting the Friends of Oceana Dunes. If you go to the Rubicon and that's where you love to go, and you may only go there one time a year, then you should support the Friends of the, the Rubicon, right? The Rubicon Trail Foundation. Right. Um, if you go onto the Ducey Ursham, the Ducey Ursham is a really popular trail. We'll find out who maintains it. Well, it's the four-wheel drive, the four-wheel drive club of Fresno. And you should be figuring out a way that you give back and you support them. A lot of times they put on events. And so these events help support their club. If um if you like going to all these places where the Cal for Wheel puts on events like Molina and um down in uh, Ocotillo Wells, they put on events. Um, up in Sierra National Forest, the High, High Sierra uh, event. So support Cal for Wheel, who go and they 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 give back and they support these areas where they go and put on their events. Um, Ocotillo Wells, if you're down in that area, there's the San Diego Off Road Coalition. You know they do uh, cleanups and everything. I would say support them. You know so. Um, support the organizations when you're reading information from them and you're learning stuff from them, support them and support them. And I would ask, you know, being the president of Corva, you know, that you become a member, it's 40 bucks a year. And um, it means a lot. And it means, it means more than just monetary. And, you know, um, when we go and we talk to Sacramento, you know, we want to go and we want to be able to say that we're representing you know, whatever it is, 3,000, 4,000 members. We want to be able to say, I would, I would love to be able to go to Sacramento. And when Amy Granat goes and talks to um, people in Sacramento, she can say that we represent, we should be representing 40,000 people. Honestly, 50,000. Calfer Will, they've got about 5,000. They should have 50,000. Right. I mean, let's be honest about it. I mean, anybody that off-roads, why can't you, why, what is, it's $90 a year to throw 50 bucks at Cal for Wheel and 50 to 40 bucks at Corva. You could be given 10 bucks a month to the Friends of Oceana Dunes. Is it really going to hurt your, your checking account for an automatic withdrawal of, 40, of $10 a month? That's $120 a year to, to, to Friends of Oceana Dunes. It's not going to, it's not going to hurt you. If you go to Glamis all the time, Become a member of the American Sand Association. You know, sign up for ten bucks a month to 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 to, to support uh, ASA. If you're a dirt bike rider and you twist the and you twist the handle, then you should be a member of uh, one of your local uh, AMAs. You know, why aren't you part of supporting AMA? Because Don Amador he fights on everyone's behalf, right? You know, and. So, I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, BRC is here fighting. If, if, if we need anything here in California, a, Ben Burr is a phone call away. If you like what they're doing in Utah and fighting for Moab, then what, and you like going to Moab, maybe you only go once a year. You know, but do you like going to San Hollow? They're, they're going to be targeted next. Yep. You know, so, 
so 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 what you you live in California and you're going to be sending money you know to um to BRC or to the uh, Utah Off-Road Association you know if you go right in Nevada you should be donating to the Nevada Off-Road Association so anybody and everybody that off-roads should be contributing and and sending money uh to 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 one of to one of the organizations because we need your help and um, when we go and we talk to Polaris and we say we have four thousand members, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're so, they're, I mean, they're selling forty thousand rigs. Yeah, you know, I want to go to Polaris. I want to go to I want to go to Polaris and say that that we're you know we're representing you know forty thousand people. I want to call up Josh Epstein and say, hey Josh, why don't you and I and Dave Custy and Jim Sudi go and talk to Polaris? And we're going to tell them that we each have 40, 50,000 members and, you know, we need some help. So all of you that are listening, you know, you really do need to, um, you know, really support where you recreate. Agreed. 100%. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to volunteer. You need somebody to be out there with the baseball bat. That's me. Okay. I've got, I've got a couple of you um, <laughs> that I can call and, and I will elicit your help absolutely when I need you. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Um, Michael, I want to say thank you so much for coming on board and spending um, you know, over two hours talking about land use and, and your life and what you've done. Um, it's been very enlightening and uh, we need to do some more talking about it, you know, not yeah. just on the podcast, but, you know, in person and, uh, you know, I'd like to uh, I'd like to reach out to you again, um, and maybe get some uh, something in our in our magazine about uh, about what you're doing and and what you've done and and that kind of stuff. So, thank you for coming on board and being part of conversations with Big Rich and everybody out there. Please support, please support the areas that you wheel in or support those that are fighting the fight for you. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate the time. And uh, hey, go out there and twist the handle, rev up the engines, four-wheel drive, have fun, and do it responsibly, please. Oh, and another shout-out to Matt Caldwell with uh, Tread Lightly, another amazing organization doing a lot of good work. Thank you, Matt, for all you're doing, too. So the list goes on. I probably forgot somebody, and I apologize, but support, support, support. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You as well. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember... Live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.